Now, by the end of this message, I want all of us to be able to answer a simple question. And the question is this, what does true faith in Jesus look like? What does it look like? What does it look like to have true faith in Jesus? How do I know I have true faith in Jesus? And if I have it, how, do I keep, how should I keep growing in, in, in my faith in Christ? Now, we need to know the answer to this question because there is nothing more precious uh, in life than having a true faith-based relationship with the God who created us. You have many assets in life, but nothing is more precious than being knowing, being assured that you do have a genuine, true relationship with God. You see, all human beings live by faith, don't they? We all do. You are sitting in the chair without worry because you have faith that chair can hold your weight. And so when you came in, you're not worrying about it going wobbly. Uh, Brother Ola just gave us an update on the coronavirus. Uh, you're all sitting here, you're not doing panic buying, you're not going anywhere. Sort of, well, I did see a few people doing panic buying when I was up and about yesterday. But by and large, people are not doing that. Why? Because we have faith in the medical experts. We have faith in uh, Boris Johnson to uh, keep us safe. And, uh, and, and, and on track, as it were. We live by faith. We, 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 we have faith in things. Uh, and most importantly, all of us have, uh, have something or someone we put our faith in to get us through life more than anything else. Everyone here has something you're looking to to make your life worth living. Something you are investing in your energy, your time to keep your life together. And if you didn't have that thing, you'd feel powerless. You'd lose confidence in life. You'd perhaps feel very low, not able to face life. You just get tired of life. Now, for some people, that thing is a family or a relationship they have. For others, it's a job or maybe a hobby or money. Whatever it is, that thing is your God, isn't it? You live by that thing. Because if that thing was not there, you wouldn't function very well. That thing you have placed your hope in that is trying to get you through life, that thing is your God. You live by faith in that God. So the question for all of us is not whether we have faith in God. The question for all of us is, who's your God? And how do you know your God is reliable? The Bible says that there is only one true God. The true God who has come to us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. All the other gods we put our faith in, they are idols. Only Jesus is the one true God. And therefore your faith and my faith must be in Jesus of Nazareth. That's what the Bible says. And that raises a very important question which we're exploring today, isn't it? What is true faith then? If Jesus is a true God, what does true faith in Jesus look like? Now, you need to know the answer for two reasons. First of all, you need to know the answer to ensure that you're not deceived, right? Many claim to have faith in Jesus when in fact they don't. Not everybody who says they have faith in Jesus truly have faith in Jesus. So you need to know because we know we can be easily deceived. There are people buying masks which are fake. Why they are being deceived in buying those masks, right? 
The more you are buying good masks, and our brother just told us those masks are not reliable. So we need to know whether we have a true faith, a truly reliable faith in Jesus in the same way, don't we? Secondly, you need to know the answer to, what, to this question of what true faith looks like, because if you do have true faith in Jesus, you need to keep growing in your true faith in Jesus. The whole world is, is, is geared towards pressuring you to abandon true faith in Jesus. When we have a true faith in Jesus, we still face struggles in terms of keeping us on track in growing. So we need to know life gets up on us, and the flesh presses up on us. There are many things trying to keep us away from true faith in Jesus. So we need to know that. So whatever situation you're in, whether you're a true believer or you're just investigating, um, you need to know the answer to this question. What does true faith in Jesus looks like. And to help us answer this question, please turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Uh, we'll look at verse 1 to verse 11. We began actually looking at this passage last Sunday evening. We looked at the first two verses. And we're going to look at it again uh, in its entirety. Uh, this passage, really, with the focus for us is verse 3 to verse 9, verse 3 to verse 11. Uh, it records um, a famous event in the life of Jesus. Uh, a woman, Mary of Bethany, is about to anoint Jesus with oil. Her actions uh, help us to answer that question. What does true faith look like? Well, the first thing we learn from this passage is that true faith in Jesus surrenders life to Jesus. True faith in Jesus surrenders the self, surrenders everything we have to Jesus. That's what true faith is. True faith is surrendering all we are, all we want, everything about us to Jesus Christ. That's the first thing we learn about true faith. We are two days away from the Jewish festival of Passover in Jerusalem. The religious leaders are now in full swing, plotting the death of Jesus. Let's read verse 1 to 2. It was now two days before the Passover and the festive the feast of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, that is Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now, if we are watching this video, if this is a video we are watching, right, that Mark has recorded, this is the word Mark is writing, if there were a video, we can see at this moment the Jewish leaders sitting at the house of Cephas, the high priest. They are busy brainstorming ideas for executing Jesus. They want to kill him. They regard him as a troublemaker. And we are watching them in this house in Jerusalem, plotting, scheming, right? And then suddenly uh, the video shot rewinds to six days earlier. We are now in a small town outside Jerusalem a town called Bethany, where Jesus raised Razalus from the dead. And as we are watching this video, the camera zooms in. We are being taken inside this house in Bethany. We see there is a dinner party going on. There are some familiar faces there. We can see Peter, Judas, John, Thaddeus, all these great guys. And then we see in the middle of this, there is a dinner table, and Jesus is sitting at the dinner table. And perhaps we see Lazarus there, uh, who is raised from the dead, is also at this house. 
It's all happening. Great party. Jesus loves parties. As you see, as we've been going through Mark, we've seen him. Uh, we've already seen him at the tent, Matthew Levi's party. Why is that his party, right? And as we see this video, we see Jesus there sat on this table. We then see, as the camera perhaps widens the angle, right? A woman is entering the picture. A woman is approaching Jesus. And immediately we recognize her as Mary of Bethany, right? She's holding an alabaster flask, an alabaster jug in her hand. What is she about to do? Well, let's hear what Mark, how Mark records this for us through the eyewitness account of Peter. Let's read verse 3. Uh, let's read verse 3 there. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at, at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. That is the head of Jesus. Now, Mark does not tell us who this woman is here, but we know from John's record in John 12 uh, of the same event that this woman is Mary of Bethany. Uh, she's the sister of Martha and, uh, and Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead. And what Mark says here is that this woman has broken an alabaster jar of pure, expensive, fragrant oil of nard. She perhaps would have had this in the family, a very precious thing that she would have kept, saved money for, or it had been passed down from generation to generation as perhaps as a family asset. And she's taken, this is all that she has. It's very pure, it is expensive. And she has broken it, that means it's never going to be used again. And she has poured all the contents on Jesus. Now, nut is a sweet-smelling perfume which is made from a very rare plant found only along the banks of the Ganges River in India. And somehow it has made its way all the way to Israel, made this perfume and... She's poured it all on Jesus. The cost is a year's wages. For those of you who earn 50K and above, it will be 50K worth. That type of perfume. Very expensive. And we imagine as she's done that, everyone is stunned. Then there are gasps. But all of a sudden, it gives way to murmurs like, hmm. And then we see people's faces are angry. They're angry at the woman. Let's read verse 4. Verse 5. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. Now listen to this. And they scolded her. They had a goada, a serious goada. Now, Matthew, who is there, Matthew Levi, in his record, he says it is the apostles of Jesus who are having a go at Mary of Bethany. He just says the disciples are the ones having a go at her. John, who is also present, focuses on the fact that Judas is the one actually leading the pack. We read that in John's account. The key point that Matthew, Mark, and John, to a degree, is making uh, and of course, remember, Matthew's recording this through the eyes of Peter. This is Peter's account. And the key point that Mark and the, the other evangelists are making is this, is that the, Mark wants us to see that the disciples believe what Mary has done is a mistake. In their books, faith in Jesus does not require this sort of devotion. This is over the top. 
You're overdoing this Jesus thing. To them, Jesus is great, but he's not worth such a sacrifice. We love him. We've been there for three days, three years with him on the road. We see all of that, but not this. This is too much sacrifice for Jesus. Yes, we've left our boats behind, but come on, slow down. Right? What's happening here is that the disciples who have been with Jesus have now turned against their boss. What is Jesus going to do? It's got a bit of an insurrection thing going on here. Because they are not just demeaning this woman, they are demeaning Jesus who has allowed this woman to do this. So what is Jesus going to do? We did Kevin and say, you are right, guys. Yeah, I should have seen that coming. I should have stopped her. Mary, get out of here. Disappear. You shouldn't be doing these things. Because you see we're having a meal here. Is that what Jesus is going to do? Well, no. No, no, Jesus is not like that. Let's see what Jesus says. Look at verse 6 to verse 9. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do for them. But you will not always have me. You can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I said to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be taught in memory of her. Now, Jesus here is not ignoring the poor. No one cares more for the poor than Jesus. He has spent three years reaching out to the marginalized. So what's going on here? I think what's going on is that Jesus is saying to Mary of Bethany, he's saying Mary of Bethany is doing a greater work than caring for the poor. Why? Because she's putting me, Jesus, first above everyone else. First above herself, first above doing all the other things. I am the priority in her life. This is greater faith. Jesus is saying Mary is what true faith looks like. Mary is a true follower of Jesus because her actions reveal what has happened in her heart. She has surrendered her heart to Jesus. And therefore there is nothing costly therefore when it comes to Jesus. You know, when your heart is surrendered to Jesus, he's now the most precious person and possession in your life. There is no price you can put on Jesus. Anything must be surrendered to him. But the other thing is that Jesus wants us to understand is that he's not just the most precious. He's the one who now owns everything. When, when, when we surrender to Jesus, we're saying, Jesus now is the owner of my life. He's the owner of this ointment flask. He's the owner of this precious, the house I live in. He's the owner of everything. And Jesus is saying, Mary gets it. Mary understands that I'm now in charge of our life. This is what true faith is. Truth is, says to Jesus, everything I have now belongs to you. My relationship, my job, my money, whatever, the country I live in, the way I relate to the nation, everything, Jesus comes first. Now, sometimes we understand something better by considering the opposite, isn't it? We do that often in Bible study. We have a word to look at. Uh, like we did that this week, isn't it? we're trying to understand, you know, a word, what does that word mean? You know, if we're trying to understand pride, we say, okay, pride, what does pride mean? Well, let's look at what humility may look like, right, as an opposite. Or what does humility is, look at pride. So, in this case, if you want to understand what true faith is, we need to also have a look at what false faith is. 
That helps us understand what true faith is. And that's what Mark does here. Uh, to help us do this, Mark fast forwards now the video. From three, six days ago, he now fast forward again back to the present. These verses are a sandwich, sandwich a Macan sandwich in time. Uh, he jumps back to where he left verse 2. We are now in verse 10. So verse 1 and 2 is about the plot about Jesus. By verse 10 to 11, we are back two days before the feast of the Passover. We are back in busy Jerusalem. And as we are watching this video, we can see that familiar face, Judas Iscariot. He's here as well. He's chatting to the religious authorities. We can see many is being mentioned. Well, let's listen in to Mark, verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they had it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. That is, to betray Jesus. Now, Jesus' own man, Judas, is selling him out here to his enemies. And let us remember that Judas is not just one of Jesus' followers. Judas is one of the twelve apostles, the treasurer of Jesus' ministries, we might say. He runs the financial affairs. And we know that Jesus has given him this responsibility, but on top of that, Jesus has given him his full heart. He has not just offered Judas entry into the kingdom of God. Jesus has poured his whole life into Judas. They have spent three years together, eating, laughing, sharing, and even suffering on the road together. Jesus has shared his power with Judas. We have seen Judas in chapter 3 being sent out with, with, the, with the 11 and with the 11 other disciples. He has gone there to preach the good news. Jesus had empowered him with the power to heal the sick, to drive out evil spirits. Jesus loves Judas. Judas has never had a better friend than Jesus. And yet we see here that all along, Judas has been drifting away from faith, from true faith in Jesus. His desires have been swerved by the world. Yet we know from John's account that Judas has been stealing money, actually, from the, from the ministry, you might say, from the money box. So from the very beginning, Judas, it's not that Judas loved Jesus from the beginning. No, the, the fact is, from the beginning, Judas was only in this thing half-hearted. And what Mark is doing here is this. He's given us a portrait of a woman who sacrifices money, wealth, everything for Jesus. And then he's given us another portrait. Here is a man who on the outside looks like he's got it all together. The theology degrees. He understands everything. He's put him there, but he's sacrificing Jesus for money. And Mark is saying to us, look, true faith is Mary of Bethany. False faith is being like Judas. True faith surrenders our very self to Jesus like Mary of Bethany. False faith surrenders Jesus to our desires. It sacrifices Jesus. This is the sacrifice of faith. Mary of Bethany sacrifices herself for true faith in Jesus. Judas sacrifices faith for his desires. And there's a warning here, isn't there? That false faith often masquerades for true faith. Because Judas publicly claimed to be a Christian. But his heart loved the world more than Jesus. 
And the question Mike is forcing us to pause, to ask ourselves here is, which one are you here? Are you Mary or Bethany who has surrendered her heart to Jesus? Or are you Judas with false faith? And he's forcing you to ask this question by saying, don't look at how much you know. Don't look at how much you have spent with Jesus. Don't look at the theological knowledge. Judas has all of that. And Mary doesn't have any of that. She's only met Jesus along the road. She's a lady in this society. She doesn't even know much about Jesus, we might even say. But what matters is that she has surrendered her heart to Jesus. She's a true convert. Are you Mary or are you Judas? And no one can answer that question for you. Only you can answer that question. You must ask yourself, have I truly surrendered my heart to Jesus? Does Jesus have my heart? Now, it is important when we are thinking about this very difficult question that we remember that having true faith does not mean you are now perfect. Okay? There will still be areas of Mary or Bethany's life where she would need to keep surrendering to Jesus. Every true follower of Jesus is always growing in surrendering to Jesus. But the point here is that life with Jesus starts with a decisive first step of commitment. A heart commitment. There must be what we call a movement of the will. It's like in marriage, isn't it? If you're married, I hope every day you're growing and surrendering more of your affections and your desires to your better half, we might say. Right? I hope so. We struggle as husbands, don't we? And so I can speak for husbands, we're always struggling in this area. But that's the whole idea of marriage. Marriage, you know, you accept the other person up front. Right? And you, you are growing to love them more and more. But that's the point, isn't it? Growth in marriage starts with that moment of clear and decisive commitment. There was a time when you said to your spouse, I do. I am surrendering my future to you. Yes, I know you're going to be a mess for me sometimes, but I love you anyway, right? I am accepting everything about you up front. I do. And husbands and wives, we need to remind ourselves of that quite often. Because we forget, right? Don't we? I forget, certainly. But we need to remind ourselves of that. There was a time when we accepted the other person up front. But we also know that we're going to face challenges in our marriage when we need to be growing every day in surrendering, in dying to ourselves and surrendering to the other person. And in the same way, following Jesus starts with a clear heart commitment to deny yourself and surrender your life to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. There has to be that. That is the foundation. That has been the beginning. And then, of course, you go on to grow in surrendering more. A true Christian has reached the, has that beginning, isn't it? Where she says to Jesus, like Mary of Bethany, you are my everything. I surrender my heart to you. I am not trying to add you to my life. Jesus, you are now my life. I want you to be in charge. I want you to run my life. This life I have is now yours forever. And when you truly do that, when you truly mean it, Jesus will give you a new heart and he will help you work out in practice areas you need to grow to surrender. But it all starts with that initial movement of the will. A true, genuine surrender of the heart. And the question this passage is asking us is this. Are you trusting Jesus like that? Do you have true faith? 
Because if you do not, then please come before Jesus and surrender your heart to him. Like Mary of Bethany. Give your heart to Jesus. Become a true Christian. Do not keep up the pretense of true faith, of pre- pretense of faith like Judas. He was regular at church. He was always on the road with Jesus. But he never truly surrendered to Jesus. He had false faith. Don't make this mistake. Go to Jesus. Tell Jesus you repent of trying to run your own life. And you want Jesus to be in charge. That is what true faith looks like. Now, you may be thinking, some of you, but that's a big ask, isn't it? Just surrendering my whole life to Jesus like that. Just putting Jesus in charge. And I think we have to take that seriously. That is a big ask. And that's why Judas is Judas. Judas found true surrender to Jesus a big ask. And so he just kept on pretending. It's an understandable response, isn't it? Why would anyone sign away their life like that? Well, the answer in this passage, actually in this passage, the answer is that because Jesus has done the same for us. That is the answer, isn't it? True faith surrenders life to Jesus because Jesus, our God, surrendered his life to give us true faith, to give us true life in him. And that is the final truth we learn here. So the first truth we learn there is that true faith in Jesus surrenders life to Jesus. The second truth is that Jesus surrendered his life to give us true faith. That is the reason we surrender to him. Now, when you first read this passage, I wonder what first amazed you about this story? What amazed you most? What what stood out for you when you read this passage? Was it Mary's extravagant gift? Like, wow, that is just big. I mean, how do you do that? Or perhaps Mary's boldness, just walking, all these men sitting around the table and just doing this thing. Or is it the fact that Jesus shocks us by saying, ah, this is about me. <laughs> That's what he says. Leave her alone. This is about me. Does that shock you that Jesus emphasizes the benefit to himself more? Um, or what about maybe the rude responses of the disciples? Does that surprise you perhaps? That's quite the rude thing to say that don't waste it on Jesus, given who Jesus is, right? Or is it perhaps when we read of Judas Iscariot in verse 10 to 11 and, and, and the betrayal uh, of somebody that had poured his life into him? For me, actually, it is Jesus' words to Mary of Bethany in verse 8 to verse 9. That's what shocked me. Jesus says this, she has done, verse 8, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I said to you, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be taught in memory of her. I think for me what is amazing about those words Jesus says is not so much the prediction that he's going to die. We've seen that before. It is not so much that the gospel is going to be preached again in the whole world. Like, you know, Jesus has made that prediction before. We saw it in, in Mark chapter 13 twice, actually. And it's not so much also that Mary will be mentioned when the gospel is preached. Um, It's being recorded. That doesn't really necessarily shock me. We have the scriptures. For me, what is amazing about what Jesus says is 
is that Mary's action, what she has done, will sit alongside the gospel of Jesus itself. Almost like they're twins on par. Did you pick that up in verse 9? And truly I say to you, wherever, that is in any place, without a shadow of it, not in some places, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, in the old world, where the true gospel is proclaimed, I say, what she has done will be taught in memory of her. I think we have to understand this as Jesus' meaning, not simply that Mary will always be there as an illustration, no. What Jesus is saying, because there are times when the gospel is preached and this story isn't mentioned, but the gospel is preached. So we shouldn't understand that as simply retelling the record, no. What Jesus is saying is that the story of Mary, what Mary is doing is that will come to illustrate the gospel itself. Are, what he's saying is that the, what Mary is doing, if you like, is a living parable of the gospel. The breaking of the alabaster box is here to illustrate to us the sacrificial love of our Lord Jesus. Whenever the gospel is mentioned, it's just similar as to tell what Mary has done. Or wherever Mary is mentioned in that sense, the story is just pointing us to what Jesus has done on the cross. It illustrates the sacrificial love of our Lord Jesus Christ performed in his death on the cross. Just as Mary surrendered her alabaster flask and poured out its precious contents, so Jesus broke his body and shed his precious blood on the cross for us. We are meant to see Mary's alabaster box as in effect the body of Christ. Just as Mary gave to Jesus all she could, our Lord on the cross gave all of himself up for us. Not a part of himself, but the whole person. Mary gave all she could. Jesus gave all of himself up for us. Christ offered his soul, his body, himself fully God the Son, himself fully man. Jesus was sacrificed as a God-man. He gave himself up for us. And by giving all of himself, Jesus offered up, if you like, an eternal sacrifice to pay for our eternal offense against God forever. He who is God died for us. God in Christ died for your sins. In Christ, God, who could not die because he's God, took on himself a human, human flesh to pay the price. His divinity rendered his body an infinite sacrifice for your sin. And just as Mary's perfume produced a sweet-smelling aroma, the death of Jesus was a flagrant offering and sacrifice to God. Isn't that what Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 2? He says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself, all of himself, up for us. A flagrant offering and sacrifice to God. The death of Jesus for our sin was like a sweet-smelling perfume to God. It was not a foul stench in the nostrils of God, but a wonderful perfume. Just as Jesus was pleased with Mary's anointing, God the Father was pleased with the sacrifice of Jesus for our sin. It was acceptable to God. One reason many people struggle to surrender their heart to Jesus is that they are afraid that Jesus may not mean well for them. They are looking at their life and the things they love and they feel, well, surrendering to Jesus means I have to give up this, I have to give up that, I have to give up this, right? But at the same time, they know they need Jesus. 
They know they live by faith, and really what they need is a faith in Christ. They need him. They know that. But they are worried about what it will mean for these other parts of their lives. So what people do, as I said, is that they do what we, they do in Pizza Hut, isn't it? Half enough, right? <laughs> you can't make up your mind, you know, when we're going to Pizza Hut, you know. We can't make up our mind what we want, you know. Do I want, you know, veggie sizzler or beef sizzler? I, want, I can't make up my mind, so you just go half enough, right? And people do that with Jesus. We, we, wanna, we want half of Jesus and we want half of the world. A little bit of Jesus here. A little bit of Jesus with church, a little bit of Jesus at work, a little bit of Jesus there and there, hoping, just managing Jesus here and there, and feeling other things rather than with Christ. But Mary of Bethany is saying to us here, you don't have to do that. You can trust Jesus with your heart. You won't break it. He's, he's loving and is worth everything. Just come to him. Surrender to him. Mary is saying, there's nothing that you have that compares to Jesus. I had this, three, this alabaster box, but I reached the point that there's nothing. This doesn't compare to who this man is, who this God-man is. This is the God who has already surrendered his life for you on the cross to bring you to himself. This is Jesus who surrendered himself to be whipped, mocked, wounded, stripped naked, and crucified with those cruel nails for you. Nothing compares to his love. And Mary of Bethany is encouraging us here to say, look, give your heart to Jesus. Do not keep your heart to yourself. Have true faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's an encouragement to those of you who have not truly surrendered to him. But it's also an encouragement to all of us here who are already trusting in Jesus. Because as I said at the beginning, all followers of Jesus have a need to keep growing in surrendering to Jesus. And some of you have done that, and you're perhaps in, in looking at surrendering to Jesus, it's costing you, right? Like it costs Mary. Some of you have given up sinful relationship because you don't want to get entangled in sin. And you're doing that for Jesus, that's costly. We may have friends that are not very good for you, and to give up those friends, that's costly, isn't it? You have said Jesus is your number one priority. That friendship you've given up is your alabaster box, isn't it? You have broken, you've brought it to Jesus and you've broken it in front of him. Some of you are making huge sacrifices to, uh, in challenging situations in your family. Look, you could run your family like an ungodly person. And it's going to be easy for you. You could take the future into your own hands. But you have, you've decided, no, I'm going to honor Jesus. It is difficult. I'm going to die to self in this situation. I'm going to be a doormat for Christ. And it's costing you. Because you are not focusing on yourself. You're focusing on honoring Jesus. And it's painful. You are brought, that, that is your alabaster box, the family. And you brought it to Jesus to run it. Some of you are going through health challenges. Uh, difficult health challenges. You could be at home. There could be physical, mental challenges. And you, you probably think, I shouldn't even be here. There's just too many risks. I've already, I already feel down with anxiety or other things that I may be going in my life. I just feel depressed. And just by me coming to church, I'm risking catching the virus. <laughs> but you're, you're here, you're breathing Christ, right? You, you are coming before God. You, you are putting him first. You're not doing this for me, for the church. You're doing it for Jesus. You love Jesus. Every day you're dying to yourself. 
Unlike Mary of Bethany, you are laying down your life at the feet of Jesus. I mean, is that you this morning? Well, let the faithfulness of Mary encourage you to keep on putting Jesus first. Keep on surrendering to Jesus. Focus on honoring Jesus. Do not look at what others think. Don't look at, don't look at people in the church, what they think of you. We are the ones around Jesus in this situation, right? That's the church, right? And the church isn't always helpful, is it? We've seen that because the disciples are not being very helpful. Focus on Jesus. Put Christ first. Regardless of anybody's opinion. Keep on. Keep on coming to Jesus. And then there are some of us here that need this encouragement because, let us be honest, some of us are not bringing our alabaster boxes and breaking them before Jesus. For some of you, the alabaster box is your career. You trust your job more than you trust Jesus. How do I know? Because you are afraid of breaking it. You are doing everything to keep it together. It is robbing you of peace. It's probably destroying your spiritual health. That's your alabaster box. It's there in the house. You keep it. It's close to your heart. You know you need to do something about it. You need to surrender. You need to ask Jesus, Jesus, what do you really want me to live like? That's your alabaster box. You refuse to surrender to Jesus. For others, your alabaster box is some friendship you have. Or, or children even can be an alabaster box, isn't it? Things, alabaster boxes are idols we have which we, we keep to ourselves. All of us have alabaster boxes. Pride. Our pride is an alabaster box. It needs to be brought to Jesus. You know, it's getting in the way in which we love other people in our lives. We're not willing to, 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 to be a doormat for Jesus. And we need to bring that alabaster box before Jesus. We need to break it. We need to hand it over to him so that he could remake us. Like Mary of Bethany, isn't it? Mary of Bethany is challenging us here, isn't it? All of us have alabaster jars. Things the world values that we are not willing to break for Jesus. Well, only you know what it is. And Mary of Bethany is challenging all of us here to bring that which we value most in repentance before Jesus, asking him to mend us, mold us, to surrender our lives to him. Oh, be willing, brothers and sisters. Be willing to hand over every bit of your life to Jesus. Let him own your alabaster just. Of course, he may not break it, he may just skip it, right? We're not praying that God breaks our families. We're praying that God should be in charge of the way we do family, isn't it? We want him to be in charge. Let us not be afraid to hand it over to Jesus. Because Jesus is a God who loves us. And he means well for us. Let us live as people of true faith. True faith surrenders life to Jesus. Because Jesus has surrendered all of himself on the cross for us.